Welcome to the Purse Podcast. My name is Jana Hustova, and we are changing the conversation for women about money and investing. I'm super excited about my guest today, Heather McGregor. Professor Heather Jane McGregor, CBE, is the Executive Dean of Edinburgh Business School, Harriet Watt University. She is a non-executive director on several boards and received the IOD Scotland Chairs Award in 2020. She is the author of the Mrs. Money Penny column, which she wrote for the Financial Times from 1999 to 2016 and presented the Super Scrimper show on Channel 4. An earlier career in investment banking preceded 17 years as an entrepreneur. In 2008, she established the Taylor Bennett Foundation, which supports the careers of minority ethnic graduates. She was a founding member of the 30% Club in 2010, and Heather is an alumnus of the London Business School, where she gained an MBA, and the University of Hong Kong, where she gained a PhD. She has an honorary degree from the University of East London, and is a fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh. Now, in this podcast interview, we talk about money and how women can build their net worth. Heather talks about how women can take charge of their money and what her own strategy for investing and growing her net worth is. We talk about female investors, funding female founders, ESG investing. And to finish up, Heather shares her advice for women who may have suffered a loss Perhaps they've lost a business during the pandemic and how to get back on track. Heather is an inspiration. She's been a role model for me for many, many years, and I'm sure for many others too. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Please note that this podcast interview is for informational purposes only. We do not provide investment advice. So Heather, welcome to the show. I'm thrilled to have you on. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. What a a great way of spending an hour hanging out with you. Thank you. And before we get into it, I have to let you know, I've been an avid reader, as you probably expect, of your work for quite some time. I've read Mrs. Moneypenny's Careers Advice for Ambitious Women and Mrs. Moneypenny's Financial Advice for Independent Women. And, and you inspired me to think about money in a different way. Even though I studied economics A-level and economics at university, it wasn't until I picked up your book and read it more than once, actually, that I started to think about money differently. And it really inspired me to step forward and take a lot more ownership of my own finances. So thank you. Well, that's very rewarding for any author to hear, actually. So it is sufficient for me to know that I've made a difference to your life. Um, Hopefully together, we could make a difference to many more. Yeah, that sounds incredible. Now, I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and, and specifically your journey to where you are today. And I'm also curious if you could think back to a time or or an individual who initially sparked your interest in in money and financial literacy? So I was at school, actually, and it was a teacher. I mean, isn't that always, in many senses, the answer to so many things in life, that a great teacher made such a difference? And I think that's true today. And I had a teacher in economics who taught me the inverse relationship between the rate of interest and the price of bonds. And I was completely fascinated that when one went up, the other went down. And it sparked a lifelong interest in money and in particularly, actually, in the stock market. Now, at the age of 23, Heather, you told a headhunting company which had reached out to hire you for one of their clients that you would buy them. And 19 years or so later, you did. You bought the company. Can you share the story with listeners? I think it's a phenomenal story and how you were able to buy that business. Well, as you say, I was approached by this company on behalf of one of their clients. And I did go and work for the client. Actually, I got the job and I went to work for the client. But I was completely fascinated by the concept of a headhunting company. I was only 23, as you mentioned, and I thought you got jobs by applying at a job ad. I'm very old, and in those days, there was no internet. You know, you saw job ads in newspapers and things like that, or you applied to graduate training schemes, or you went to the career service of your university. It never occurred to me that somebody was out there scouting to order, as it were, 
And I was specifically approached because I had written some articles about some specific things to do with consumer behavior. And it felt to me like a cross between a management consultancy and a private detective agency. And I thought, how fascinating would that be to do for a living? And, and I thought, this is the kind of company I want to own one day. I was 23. I had no idea then how I was going to achieve that. What I did know was that if it's something you want to do, you should always stay in touch with people and you should always write thank you letters. So I stayed in touch with this company over that 19 years. I tried to help them. I recommended clients to them. I recommended candidates to them. I used to nip around when I was doing my Christmas shopping to say hello to them. I went to a couple of their social events. And then when in the year 2000, I decided that the time had come to try and buy them, I approached them and said I wanted to buy them. And they said, actually, do you know what? why don't you try and come and work here first? I think they were incredulous, absolutely incredulous. So I did go and work there and I constructed what we call a call option. So a promise from one of the founding partners that she would sell me a proportion of her stake when she retired two years later. I got her to write that promise down. That's why we call it a call option because it meant that I could enforce her to sell me at a price that we agreed at the time. And two years later, she did. And then I owned 20%. And then I was able two years later to say to everybody, well, I would like to buy the rest, please. And so I negotiated to buy the rest of the company. And so by the end of 2004, I owned the whole company. And you asked how I was able to do that. So I borrowed a lot of it, actually. I borrowed some of it from the people selling it to me. They took IOUs over a period of time. I made it worth their while. I said that if they took IOUs over two and a half years, that then if the turnover of the company went up, they would get a higher price. So that it was worth taking an IOU because it could potentially be more money. And the turnover did go up and they did get a higher price. And then I also borrowed money from the bank. And the final bit of it, the bank wanted a secured loan. And so I didn't know what to do about that because I'd really sold my house to buy the 20% two years earlier. So I didn't have anything to use as security. And this next bit, I don't recommend anyone to do. I will tell you what we did, and I would definitely not recommend it. One of my best girlfriends put her flat up as security for the last quarter of a million pounds. And I tell you what, I have never been more grateful to anybody. And I got out of that particular loan as quickly as I could so that she wasn't on the hook for terribly long. Wow, well, that's very brave. And obviously your friend was demonstrating a lot of belief and confidence in you, Heather. This is one of the things that strikes me, Heather, is that your appetite for risk-taking and your ability to step forward to take that risk. And, and you obviously need people around you to support you in that endeavor. But I think risk-taking is a big part of expanding and growing your wealth. I did get her to take a risk and I took a risk too, but I made it worth her while. So I think all risk has to be risk-weighted. Right? So what's the downside? And could you cope with the downside? And what's the upside? I gave her 5% of the company in shares. So in the end, what happened was she put her flat on the line. She was off the hook within 18 months and she owned 5% of the company. Worth her while. So she never parted with any cash and she owned 5% of the company. And I eventually bought her out. And that was real money. She got real money for it. A great investment. Now, you cover so many important topics in your book, Mrs. Money Penny's Financial Advice for Independent Women. The whole premise of your work and writing on money is about the importance of financial literacy and this idea of a financial finish line. I love that phrase. How do women go about improving their financial literacy and working out their financial finish line? These are two different questions. So let's take them one at a time. Financial literacy, there is so much that is available out there. I personally have always had and still have a great admiration for the website financetalking.com, which is a training website that has been around for, honestly now must be 30 years, run by a girl called Miranda Lane. And on that website, you can do finance for non-financial manager type, very, very small little modules that are very un-anxiety making, you know, they, it's really easy to do, it's really easy to log on and do it. So at the very least, I would say to people, do something like that, 
try and take an interest in the finances of your employer. If your employer is part of or is a publicly listed company, it will have accounts. Even if it's not a listed company, it will have accounts at company's house. I would take a look at the finances of your own employer. And then the next thing I would do is look at the finances of the competitor of your employer. And if you run your own business, I would look at the finances of people that you compete against or suppliers that you use or distributors that you use. So to make it personal, take an interest in the things that are going to interest you rather than some obscure company. And then right at the other end of the scale, you can do something as extreme as I have just done, which is to qualify as an accountant. When we went into lockdown on the 23rd of March, I decided that I wasn't going to waste the pandemic. I could see it was going to go on for a long time. And so I decided to use my commuting time to study for my Chartered Institute of Management Accounting qualification. And five exams later, I am going to narrowly squeak in to become a Chartered Management Accountant before my 60th birthday. Only just. I think I'll be actually chartered in February and I become 60 in March. So there are two extremes there and there's everything, everything in between. But do you know more about the finances of your employer or yourself than you did a week ago? That's something, a question you should ask yourself every week. The other thing is that people are very uneducated about their own money. So do you know, for instance, how much money you earn per hour? There are websites um, out there that if you go and put your annual salary in, it will tell you how much you earn per hour. If you know that, then when you go to buy something like a new skirt or a new handbag, you know how many hours you've worked to buy it. I would also suggest that people should be becoming financially acquainted with their own cost of living. Do you actually know what it costs you to live? Do you write down every month all the things that you pay for regularly? I mean, it's a constant astonishment to me what I'm paying for, for instance, for app subscriptions. And I don't do enough of an audit of what I am paying for. So I would be really auditing your own expenditure, trying to understand your own expenditure, trying to understand what you do. and. I say to people that if you understand what it costs you to live, you will understand what it might cost you to do things like change career. Because if you know that it's costing you X to live per month, then you will know that if you want to go and do a study for a three month course, that will mean you have to stop work. You know how much money it will cost you to live for three months of the course. And it just gives you a much better information base on which to make big decisions. So learning about your own finances is just as important as learning about other people's. So the other question you asked was about a financial finish line. The concept of a financial finish line is something I heard about years ago in a TED talk. And I thought how right it was that there is a concept of how much money is enough. And what do you need to do to get to that financial finish line? So if you add up all of your goals in life, your children's college fees, your paying off your mortgage, funding your pension to a certain level, what are your big financial ambitions in life? And what do they come to? So if you were to say, right, I'd like to pay off my mortgage or I'd like to move house and pay off my mortgage and then I'd like to fund my pension to the lifetime limit which is in the UK is a million pounds. And I think there isn't a limit in the United States, but I'd like to fund my pension to a certain point. I'd like to pay off my mortgage and I'd like to save enough money to pay my children's university fees or whatever you want to do with it. Then you've got an idea of what is enough. And what are you aiming? And then you can put a plan together to get to that point. I think the concept that we're just all chasing more and more money without an end in sight is very dehabilitating. There is a point at which you will have got enough money. And so what is enough money and what do you have to do to get there? That may be that it's a bit like losing weight. You know, you say you want to lose 10 pounds and you've lost 10 pounds. You actually, you know, well, I'd like to keep going and lose 15 pounds. Me personally, is constantly struggling with even losing five pounds, but at least you have a target in sight and you might change that target, but you have a target in sight and you know what you have to do to get it. It's exactly the same with money. Yes, that's really great advice. And if you have the financial finish line to underline what you said there, you know where you are in relation to that. And if certain life events happen, again, you can plan for getting back on track. And I think where it's very difficult is if we haven't identified that financial finish line and then we get to a certain point, we're of a certain age and we're suddenly surprised how we're falling short in terms of the money that we might need. And that's 
exactly what we need to avoid. So why do we need women to be in control of their money and make long-term investing decisions? And it sounds like a fairly obvious question, but the latter part of that question, we know there's research out there that states that women tend to defer long-term investing decisions to their partners, so boyfriends, husbands, that sort of thing. And then the second part of the question is, why is this especially important today? There's a lot that's going on in the economy and in our society generally. So why is it important? Women live longer. We live longer than men. On average, in different countries, we live longer. We're also more likely to end up without them anyway. There's a divorce rate of one in three in the United Kingdom, and I think it's roughly the same in the United States. Men have an unfortunate habit of either disappearing off with other people, or we might meet somebody we'd like to disappear off with. We also have the issue that they occasionally die or become incapacitated and can't work. So a man is not a financial plan. And that is what I would tell everybody. And you need to be self-sufficient. Otherwise, the risk, it's another risk decision, really. You say that I've got a great appetite for risk. I do have an appetite for risk, but for calculated risk, I've got zero appetite for the risk of being left on my own. Because when I got married, which was 33 years ago, I looked at the odds that he might either leave me or die or be incapacitated in some way. And I realized that it would be much better if I had my own decisions and my own understanding of money and that I was protected against being left on my own at some point. Now, in the event, he hasn't done any of those things. He's still very much alive with me and sitting in the other room watching cricket. But I don't think I would want it to have banked on that 33 years ago. Absolutely. What would you say holds women back in terms of how they manage their money and generate wealth? And why haven't women been able to generate more wealth? I think there's a confidence issue and I think there's a structural issue. So there is a confidence issue. Women are much worse asking for pay rises. I would direct everybody to the podcast I made for the Financial Times a few years ago, which is still sitting on the website, about how to ask for a pay rise and why women aren't so great at that. And again, it's around confidence. And the second thing is that it's a structural issue. So in the event that you were the person that took care of the children or stopped working for a bit, and it's not just about taking care of children, you might have, for instance, followed your husband to a foreign posting. That happened to me. I trailed around the world after my husband, who was posted to all sorts of places. And I would got jobs in those places, but I was a price taker. Everybody knew that I needed to be in that particular country at that time. And so they knew that they didn't have to pay me very much. My husband was working. He was presumably the, the breadwinner. And so I didn't earn very much money all those years I trailed around after him. And a lot of women work part time because it's, it fits around childcare. And as a result of all of this, they don't amass the same wealth as men. There is the magic, of course, of compound interest. If you just put money regularly in a bank account and leave it there, particularly actually if you put it into a stocks and shares ISA so that it's invested and leave it there. There is the magic of compound interest, which is that money breeds money. And you know you then get interest on the interest and so on and so forth. And if you invest in a stocks and shares ISA, the dividends from those stocks and shares will pay back into the ISA, which will just grow and grow. I would encourage women to start saving money and to start saving really early and to start saving it in a way that they almost don't notice, like try and save £10 a month and then see if you notice it. And if you don't notice it, put it up to £15 a month and so on and so forth. So it is a structural thing that women aren't thinking about saving money because they've got so many things to spend it on, especially with your children. And as I said, they end up making career compromises, but they're in a partnership that calls for that kind of thing. It's not just about having children or following your partner to a foreign country or another city. It's also possibly about looking after elderly parents. You might have caring responsibilities. There are lots of reasons why women, much more than men, take breaks from working and earning. And that is why, structurally, they end up disadvantaged. Yes, absolutely. And just picking up on systemic bias as well, I think the fact that we still see a lack of women in leadership, it's, it's a lot more difficult for women 
to move up the corporate ladder. You know, we continue to see a lack of women on boards, although there's some phenomenal work that's being done, obviously by the 30% club and others. But if you're not in those senior positions, you're not earning as much money, you're not getting as many benefits, you're not earning bonuses, you're not saving that money, you haven't got equity or employee options or what have you, stock options. So again, there's a lot of money that's just not available for women to then invest and for that to compound over time as well. I'm curious about why talking about money, especially in the UK, is still such a taboo topic. Why is there shame around money, even for women who are financially self-sufficient and I'd say financially successful? I think this is very cultural. We were brought up to not talk about money. It was considered to be a distasteful subject. People are much more willing, in my experience, to talk about their sex lives than they are to talk about their finances. And usually I would say their sex lives are a lot less interesting than their finances. So I would much prefer to talk about people's finances. I usually also there's a way to improve your finances more easily than there might be to improve your sex life. I really think that people are either embarrassed or ashamed or feel it's inappropriate. That might be because you don't want to discuss it with other people, but you need to find someone to discuss it with. Actually, another great issue is that people then quite often then entrust to complete strangers information about their financial position, which then leads to scams. And I think we have to be always on the lookout for being taken for a ride by people and we all read of people who fall in love over the internet and then hand over money and actually I once wrote an article for the Daily Mail about people over the age of 50 who went on dating sites and then ended up losing loads of money to the people they met particularly newly divorced women with lots of assets they don't know who to trust they've depended on their husband for a very long time and then they meet somebody wonderful and they're used to depending on the partner in their life financially so they carry on doing that but the minute you have a big life change you are newly retiring or that you're newly divorcing or you're newly widowed you need to stop and work with someone who's a professional in this area and one of the things I would always suggest is certainly in the UK that you go to the Consumer Association website, which is the WITCH website, where they have a list of approved people. And that is to be the first place I would always start. Something where someone's been reviewed and accredited by something as squeaky clean as the Consumers Association would, would win it for me. And the other thing, of course, is to take the recommendation from friends about who to talk to about money, because you're bound to have friends who've got people that advise them and who they're happy with. Fantastic advice. Now, if you were to list three to five things that women can start doing in order to take charge of their money and wealth, i.e. growing their net worth, what would you say? Well, the first thing I would do practically is to write down everything I spend. So I'll, literally, I would get a notebook, choose a different page for every category, if you like. So what do you spend on energy bills in the house? What do you spend on TV? What do you spend on app subscriptions? That would be a very long page for me. What do you spend on clothes? You know, I would monitor everything you spent maybe for a month and then work out where you're spending it. And the reason I would do that is there are almost certainly things you could do that would save money. Inertia is a real thief of cash. Time is the great thief. I know people who haven't changed their car insurance for 25 years because the renewal just turns up in the post and they just renew it. It's easy. You just let it carry on. They could have been saving 50 or 100 pounds a year over 10 years. That's a lot of money. Similarly with your internet connection, similarly with your mobile phone contract, do you actually know what you're writing? So I would first do an audit of everything you spend for a month and then consider are you getting the best deals? You know, lots of people say, oh, well, I need to save money so I won't buy a cup of coffee every day. Honestly, forget that. You buy as many cups of coffee as you want because if you could just sort out the big things you spend money on, your remortgage, for instance, it is entirely possible that you're sitting there on a mortgage that isn't the best deal you could get because remortgaging is a hassle. There's no doubt about it. But it will save you an awful lot of cups of coffee. I'll first do an audit. The second thing I do is an audit of your future income. So 
So however young or old you are, do you know what you're going to earn in retirement? And to some extent at this point, have your financial finish line in target. What is it that you want to earn? So I drew up a list. Let's assume that I've paid off my mortgage by then. Let's assume that I've done a few things. But for instance, I don't want to go into my retirement and not be able to afford to have my nails done or my waxing done. I intend to be still waxing at 85. And so I'm absolutely factored that in to what I expect to spend in my retirement. And I have a view of how much money I need to earn in my retirement in today's money terms. And I know how much money I will earn based on the projections of my pension. And then I need to work out how I get more money into my pension in order to pay for all this beauty treatment. So it is that kind of idea. So have an idea of what you spend now. And then have a view of what you think you need to spend in the future and have a view of how much your pension is going to deliver to you in the future. And if you're in a workplace pension, almost certainly your workplace will offer you free consultation uh, with somebody to give you an illustration of your pension benefits or your likely pension benefits, or you'll get them once a year. Go back and have a read of them. And if you're running your own business I can't imagine you being in non-pensionable work, but if you're not in work or running your own business and you're not contributing, then you need to start really thinking about that. Is that a good position to be in? Because, you know, you're not setting yourself up for success. So have a view of what you're going to spend now, have a view of what you're going to spend in the future, have a view of what you're going to earn in the future. Remember that your future pension from the state, if you are in the UK, will not kick in now until you are 67 and that age will go up in the future. We'll all have to be working till we're 70 years old, probably, at, at some point. The final thing I would say to you is get an illustration of your state pension. You can go online in the UK and get an illustration of your state pension. And it will also offer you the opportunity to see whether you've missed out on national insurance payments. One of the most common reasons for women to suffer financially in later life is that they didn't pay their maximum national insurance contributions. You need to have paid maximum national insurance contributions for 33 years in order to qualify for the maximum state pension. And you can go online and see whether you've actually paid it or not. And if you haven't paid enough, then you're allowed to go back six years and pay it. I've always been assiduous about this, and so I have fully paid up. All those years I spent abroad, I paid my extra class three voluntary contributions so that I would have those 33 years, and I've got those now. So I will get the maximum state pension when I retire, which I won't get until I'm 67. But interestingly, last week, I went online and looked at my husband, and he has not made the maximum national insurance contributions. He never paid his class three contributions when he was abroad. And it's going to cost £4,000 to pay six years back contributions for him. And I can't pay any further back than that. But the difference between what he will earn when he retires is £2,000 a year. So by paying one payment of £4,000 out, he will earn an extra £2,000 a year in retirement. He only has to live for two years after he retires in order for me to get that £4,000 back. And by the way, he still won't be able to claim the maximum pension. So I can't, because I can't go back more than six years, I can't actually, and it's so close to his retirement, I can't put him into the same position that I'm in at all. And I quite cross with myself for not encouraging him to look at these things. I would say to everybody listening, go online in the UK. It doesn't matter how old you are, 21 years old, ask for an illustration of what your old age pension will be, which is free and which is calculated on the spot for you. All you need is your national insurance number. And then look to see if you have made appropriate national insurance contributions. And one of the things you could consider doing if you haven't made them is to make some. If you've missed years for caring or you've missed years for being abroad, then you have the option of doing that. Even if you're a non-working wife and you have the luxury of being a non-working wife and your man is your financial plan and you know that it will all be okay, I'd still do it because then you will have that money independently from the age of 67 and you won't have to ask anybody else for the money to spend. Finally, everybody please make a will. It is so important. I have friends who have been really disadvantaged by the fact that their partner didn't make a will and then passed away. Particularly, by the way, if you're not married to your partner and of course only about half of us these days bother to get married, if you're not married to your partner, you must make a will and you must get them to make a will. If you are married and something happens, everything will come to you anyway, and it will come free of tax. 
But if you're not married, if they haven't made a will, everything will go to their nearest family. And the awful thing is that if you have a joint mortgage, so the worst scenario is you have a joint mortgage with somebody, something happens to them, you'll be left with the debt. The whole mortgage will come to you and be in your name and their money, so much as they own, will go to their family and won't come to you. So it is so important to make a will. I know everybody thinks they're not going to die, but we are all going to die and we should have a will in place. Fantastic advice. Heather, have you been working with a financial advisor? Do you have a financial advisor? I've used different financial advisors at different times for very specific things. I have used um, mortgage advisors. I feel there's always benefits in doing that because they see a much larger part of mortgage availability than I could find myself. And it's a minefield out there. So it is a very helpful thing to have a mortgage advisor. I have used people to advise me about pensions. I cashed in my defined benefit pension and transferred it into an actual holding, which is something I would not encourage people to do unless they are absolutely certain. I mean, nine times out of 10, this is not the right thing to do. It was the right thing to do for me. But if you want to do it, you have to use a financial advisor. The way that the government has set up the rules is to stop people being scammed in order to transfer your defined benefit to a, a pot of money, you need to have a financial advisor. So I reluctantly had to go and get one in order to just even be able to do that. But I am my own financial advisor on most things. I set up my own self-invention pension plan. I found all the little bits of money that I had from all sorts of odd jobs I'd done over the years. There is a government website for that, by the way, called Find My Pension. And then put it all together and then invested it myself, including in commercial property. So I am my own financial advisor, except when I have a specific need, like getting a mortgage or releasing my defined benefit pension. Now, if you were to summarize your strategy for investing and growing your net worth, what would you say? I'm sure our listeners today are very curious to hear you talk about whether you want to call it your investment thesis or your strategy for how you grow your net worth. If you're happy to share, I would love to hear it. So my interest has always been in the long term. I have always backed the things that um, either I think I can leverage. So, you know, I invested in my own business and I put everything into my own business for many years because I backed myself. I thought that a pound of my money and me together could do more than if I give a pound of my money to somebody else. Not that I was going to invest it in some other company. If it's a question of investing it in other companies, there are people better at doing that than me. But investing it in my own company where my actual labor was going to be leveraging that pound, I thought I could do better. And in fact, that, that was exactly what happened. Invested in my own business and it was very successful. So I knew that that was the best thing to do. And I invested the money in my company for the longer term. I would always have a view over what time period are you investing? Even now, I'm 60 years old, even now, I'm investing on at least a 10 to 15 year horizon. And in my life expectancy, I'm probably going to live to 90. So I've got 30 years to pay for. About to sign a new five year contract with my employer. So I'm clearly going to work till health being okay until I'm 65. But if I live another 25 years, I've got to pay for that. So I think I've always had a mind that I'm investing for the long term. And I think, so I don't look at things, for instance, if I invest in stocks and shares, I don't look at it. I don't look at it from one six month period to the next, probably even one year period to the next. And I also believe in consistent investing. So I choose a fund that I actually want to invest in and then just put a certain amount of money into it every month so that it just piles up in that one fund. So there are only two kinds of people, those people who think they can time their investment and people who realize they can't don't even try market time i reckon that if i put 500 pounds away every single month and buy shares in the same fund every single month month on month on month on month the ups and downs will sort themselves out and over time i've put money into that fund i don't know what the average price is that i will have got it will be different every month but i don't actually look at the price i just put 500 pounds into a fund every month at whatever the share price is at the time. I prefer to invest in funds than I do in individual stocks and shares because then somebody else is thinking about which stocks and shares to invest in. But I go for funds that 
are themed on the things I believe in, like small and medium-sized companies or commercial property. And these are things I personally have an interest in. And so I buy funds that are specialising in those areas. But that's as close as I get to stock picking. I used to be a stockbroker. I know how much effort it takes to keep an eye on what's going on out there. I haven't got time for that. And I think just by what you said there, Heather, you, you confirmed the research that's out there, which says that women invest for the long term. You know, we're less likely to invest on a fad. We're not chasing alpha. Of course, we're interested in performance. We want good returns. But we spend a longer period of time researching. But once we've made a decision to invest in the way that we want to invest, we then hold that position. So we're a lot more consistent in how we invest, which, which also drives better returns. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about women investors and also women entrepreneurs, so female founders, women who run their own businesses. I'm curious to know what role do women investors, women with capital to invest, have to play in creating a world which is far more representative of the 51% of the population and also in addressing some of the world's problems right now? First of all, lots of fabulous fund managers are women. I remember you know, 20 years ago writing articles about some of the leading fund managers in the city at the time. That was actually when I was first writing about, for instance, Helena Morrissey. That's how I got to know Helena Morrissey. And then in, in 2010, she asked me to help her set up the 30% club. And, and because she was a great fund manager, that, that was how I came across her. And I, I found there were a lot more women in fund management than in broking. And I think that's because of the type of job it was, as you say, women were interested in doing lots of research on things. And actually, Helena was particularly focused on the debt capital market, you know, bonds and investing in bonds as well. And that was something that, you know, there are a lot more people out there that buy bonds than there are that buy shares. So that it's a much bigger market. And I think it was always an industry that lent itself to more women. It had less silly hours. It was more thoughtful. So I think that some of the greatest fund managers around have been women and still are. But what is interesting is that female businesses find it very difficult to attract investment. They start up businesses. It's still the question why that happens. There's been lots of research into it. It shows that if people know the sex or the gender, rather, of who they're investing in, they're more likely to invest in a man than a woman. And I believe that ideally, venture capital or investment decisions should be taken gender blind so that you don't actually know the gender of the, of the person that's presenting to you. And there's a lot of work to be done still on getting equality of opportunity for startup businesses. And so there is, you know, I think there's a real opportunity out there for women managed money to invest in women. Against that, at the end of the day, we want the right ideas and the right things to invest in. So women have got to do their own work into making sure that they are investable. I had a bit of a nightmare of it. I must have gone to 15 banks with fully worked up plans. I mean, every single bank wanted a different thing, different list, different forecasts in a different way. They wanted adjustments. You know, I spent bucket loads of time and I wrote to a girlfriend and, and we did it together, putting together these applications for all these banks, many of whom wouldn't even meet me. And I've kept all my rejection letters. I use them when I go out and do speeches, especially if I'm asked to do a speech at a bank that refused me, which has happened more than once. I take their rejection letter and read it to them and remind them that they refused to back me. And I do think there's a sort of thought, oh, well, you know. What do they say? Oh, they're always massively embarrassed, massively embarrassed. But it's a fact, you know, like they did all reject me. I predicted that in the first year, the company would grow by 20%. And everybody said that was wildly optimistic. And in the end, I grew it by 35% in the first year. It was hugely more than my estimation that I used for these bank presentations, but nobody believed me. And I'm sure if I'd been a man, I'm sure they would have believed me. They just think that it was because I was playing around. Obviously, this was nearly 20 years ago, and things have come a long way since then. But it's still the case in 2022 that women startups find it harder to attract finance than male startups. 100%. And it's not acceptable. There's a lot going on now. And obviously, things have changed, as you said, over the last 20 years. And my view is we need more women with capital to back female founders 
because we know based on the data that women tend to invest in female-founded companies at twice the rate that men do. Plus, they have a better appreciation for female-led innovation. They have lived experience. They share that lived experience. Female founders don't need to spend as long explaining their product or, or their market. So we need more women with capital to invest in female founders to make up for that shortfall, but it's work in progress. I'm interested in your view on ESG investing and how women think differently. Again, there's a lot of data out there that states that women want to invest responsibly. Millennials do as well. And that's driving, I think, a lot of the inflow as well of capital into ESG funds. What's your view on the market and and what's going on there? There is a lot of interest in ESG. And we're finally seeing the big difference, which is to make it financially worthwhile. I'm a director of two public companies and one private equity-backed company. I see a lot of activity in, for instance, the commercial debt market, because two of those companies borrow money and they borrow it at scale in the debt capital markets globally. And what I have seen is that we finally are able to borrow more cheaply if we commit to certain ESG goals. So the markets are now rewarding you for having an appropriate equality, diversity and inclusion policy. They are rewarding you for reducing your carbon emissions. It used to be the case that it was just a feel-good factor that if you did the right thing, that people would invest in you and they would set up these groups of funds to invest in these companies. But now there is actual real gain to be had from performing well and reducing your carbon footprints and so on. You could actually lower your borrowing costs. So companies are now much more focused, which only goes to show that if you do change the pattern of investing, companies will respond accordingly. And we have a real climate emergency. The Bank of England, I have to say, have really led the way in this, in modelling what would be necessary to achieve net zero and to look at how investors can participate in that. And I agree with you. I think young people growing up and getting their first foot in the door on seeing how their pension fund is invested and everybody listening, if you are in a pension fund, you are invested in stocks and shares. Do you actually know what stocks and shares you are invested in, I would really encourage you, unless you're controlling every single part of your own portfolio, and I'm not controlling every part of my portfolio, I have a lot of money invested in just group funds places, go and find out what they're investing in. And if you don't agree with it, then write and tell them that you don't agree, that you don't want to be invested in X company or Y company. It's only through citizen shareholding, if you like, and citizen activist that we can direct funds ourselves. So it's not just the money you control yourself directly, it's also the money that is in your pension fund. Voting is terribly important, of course. If you are a direct shareholder, you can vote at the AGM on whether or not you agree with everything from a company's pay policy through to their acquisitions. But because your money is on the whole invested through conglomerate pension funds, then you don't feel that you have a vote. Increasingly now, the fund managers are putting in place software that will allow the individual shareholder to participate in voting. And I think that that will be very important in the future. So you can use your voice to affect change, even if you're not investing directly. Very powerful. And I think it's something that resonates, especially with women and and millennials. You can affect change by being a shareholder, an investor, and become a lot more active. So using your voice, using your vote, It's brilliant. Now, Heather, how do we encourage more women to invest and then also to invest in female founders? I would always encourage you, if you want to get on the investment ladder, to try and do it with more than one of you. At the very least, for instance, if you've got a very tiny amount of money, you could get together with a group of friends and start a share club whereby you pool that money and maybe you can get enough people together even to pull 50 pounds a month and you would open with like a joint account between all of you and put 50 pounds a month into a stock or a share and you could have the fun of meeting up once a month in appropriate covid distant way to discuss which stock or share you wanted to invest in and if you do it all together then you can start it on a platform like interactive investor where there are very minimal fees and there's very minimal amount of money that you need to commit And you could start like that. Then 
you can progress that to a point in where you, if you have a bit more money to invest, and if you'd like to invest directly, you've got money that you want to risk putting into companies that are just starting up where you can't trade the shares. It is risky, but there are also big tax incentives to do that. In the United Kingdom, there's a big tax advantage if the company is EIS registered. If the company has set themselves up in a way to attract tax efficient investment, then there's a good way of doing that. But again, I would really suggest that you try and join a club. There are lots of different groups of women angel investors out there. Join an angel investing group, ideally a women-only one if you possibly can, and work out together what you want to go into investing in otherwise, and then you can consider direct investments. So it is something that I feel is much better done. Investing is, on the whole, much better done in a group atmosphere than on your own. And you can still take individual decisions and go and make individual investments, of course, over and above that. But it's really helpful, especially if you're starting out to see how other people do it. So if you're very young and you want to start a share club, there's lots of stuff online to tell you how to do that. As I said, you could literally get 10 people together putting £10 a month in. That's £100 a month to invest. That's £1,200 a year that you're investing. And then you can share the proceeds. I mean, I'm all in favour of something you saved up over a year. You could take a quarter of it out each year and divide it between you, and you will still see it grow. If you're going to be investing directly in companies, you have to be aware that the failure rate of new companies is still very high. But the good thing is if you collaborate with others in angel investing and angel investing, of course, the activity of investing in completely new startup companies. Again, if you do it in groups, then it's a collective decision. It's a much more interesting decision and people can support each other in making that decision. So I would be reaching out and finding like-minded souls to do this with. And I think, as you say, when you're investing with, whether it's a group of friends or colleagues, each of you will have different experiences, different skills, you'll be able to bring a very different perspective to the table, which overall should mean that your investing decision, i.e. how you invest, is that much better, which is the power of diversity. So it's fantastic advice. Heather, I'm coming up to my final question, and I want to say thank you for sharing as much as you have. You've been very open and insightful as usual. My last question is, really about what advice would you have for women who may have suffered a loss recently? Perhaps they've gone through a divorce or the death of a loved one, or perhaps they've lost their business during the pandemic. How can women recover financially? So how should they think about it? How might they plan to ensure they're on the right track? And how do they continue on that path? I've had lots of financial setbacks in my time. I've made disastrous, for instance, property purchasing decisions that have set me back years and years, which is probably why I still have a mortgage even now. I have made spectacularly bad investment decisions along the way from time to time. But tomorrow is another day. And I've always looked at, you know, I expected to be mortgage free by now or whatever. So I'm not. So I need to keep working. You know, I just adopt a different approach to different things. Again, have a view of your financial finish line. If you've been unfortunate to lose your business in the pandemic or indeed before the pandemic, or you were in a two earning household and now you're in a single earning household, you have to first of all adjust at what does your financial finish line need adjustment. And secondly, you had your own business. I'm sure you want your own business again, probably, but maybe you ought to go and work for somebody else for a little bit. What I would say is don't close your mind to anything. It'd be completely radical, even to the point that I would say, okay, do you need to be, for instance, renting out your home and going to live with somebody else or going back to your parents and studying again and requalifying again? Don't limit yourself. What I find is that people, because they had a certain income and a certain way of life, they think that's what they've got to replicate all over again. I remember talking to somebody who had been made redundant about getting another job. And they said, I can't possibly do whatever it was I was suggesting because it, I need to earn at least £70,000 a year. And I remember saying at the time, would it be better to earn £40,000 a year for the next three years or be unemployed for a year and a half and then earn £70,000? You might be chasing the dream for so long. What you actually need to do is get on right now and earn some money. So I would say to everybody, get out and do something and earn some money, even if it's not as much money as you want 
it will be good experience. Try and earn it in an area that would lend itself to adding to your CV so that one day you can get back to the kind of level you want. If, for instance, you've had your own business and you haven't got one anymore, try and go and work for a competitor or somebody that will give you the more information and more help so that when you do start your own business again, you're in a stronger position. If you need to get to your financial finish line a bit quicker, then what's the most well-paid thing you can do? I mean, obviously, within legal limits, what is the most well-paid thing that you can do? And maybe you don't want to do it, but maybe you could tolerate doing it for a bit to get yourself back. So don't limit yourself. I find people tend to limit themselves because they either want to keep working in a certain area or in a certain geography or at a certain level. And actually, look the longer term. I would rather have a lower salary over a longer period of time. And to your point, Heather, I think people, it's very easy to do, we've all done it, get stuck in a certain mindset where you have, as you said, expectations about how you should live your life or what you should be doing at a certain age. And that often keeps people stuck. And so don't limit yourself. Keep your mind open. Be open to new opportunities and keep moving forward. I think that forward motion is extremely important. Yeah. You know, one of the things I decided to do in going plural was spend my time sitting on audit committees. And when I realized that in the United Kingdom, at least, we are heading in the direction of making it mandatory for every audit committee to be a qualified accountant. I went out and studied for my accountancy exams at the age of 59 so that I could future-proof my earning capacity and make sure I could still get to my financial finish line. And I didn't allow my imagination to restrict me to thinking I couldn't qualify at 59. So I think it's really important that you don't limit yourself in what you can achieve and how you can earn your money and how you can save and invest your money. Everything is possible if you let yourself be ambitious and think about the long term. It's fantastic advice. And I think, Heather, you might have just inspired me to look into becoming a qualified chartered accountant. Very interesting career. And, and I think you're clear evidence of the fact that it's never too late. And if you put your mind to anything, you, you really can achieve it at whatever age. So once again, Heather, you're an incredible inspiration. You have been for as long as I can remember so thank you. I absolutely loved this conversation. And I do hope that we get to meet in person one of these days as well. Me too. And thank you very, very much for having me on your podcast. Thank you for joining me today. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me online at Join the Purse, or you can subscribe to our newsletter, jointhepurse.substack.com. Until next time, goodbye.